Go ahead and, yeah. Over the last few times that I've been preaching here, we've been uh, looking at the last parables of Jesus. The last parables of Jesus are in this last time of, of uh, the last week, right before his death, and he tells these stories that are riveting and empathic and uh, sometimes a little bit hard to hear. He's telling these stories, remember, in the context of coming into Jerusalem from the, uh, the triumphal entry where he's on the donkey and everybody's shouting Hosanna to the son of David and the Pharisees are not so happy with him. That's Sunday when he comes into Jerusalem. He leaves. He comes back Monday morning, curses the fig tree that doesn't have any fruit. And then the Pharisees ask him, where do you get your authority to do these things? Um, oh, I forgot. On Sunday, he cast out all the merchants and stuff from the temple. So that made the, the, the priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees pretty upset. And, and, and then he responds to their question about where he gets his authority with some stories that we talked about over the last couple sermons. The story of the two boys, one of them who said, I won't go out, but then repented and did. Another one who said, I will go out and serve in your vineyard. And then he did not. And they were the second Outwardly religious, but unfaithful and disobedient and rebellious. And, and he told the story about the, the people who were supposed to tend the, the vineyard. And you might remember that those, those people, they um, stoned and killed and beat up all the servants that he came to ask for the fruit from the vineyard. And so he sent his own son and they killed the son. He's predicting that the Pharisees and the scribes and priests, they would kill him, the son of God. And his attempts are to like pierce their hearts and break through the, the hardness that they have towards the gospel and remind them that they need to repent. Even though they're spiritual leaders, their hearts are barren. But he's not successful in breaking through their hearts. And that Monday, as he leaves Jerusalem, they conspire and commit to doing anything possible to kill Jesus. And so Tuesday comes along and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. And we'll find the next thing that happens on Tuesday. Last week, I was at a funeral, a graveside service for my Aunt Ruth, and her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids were all there, and we're sitting around and talking as you do when you're eating and socializing together, and, um, and, and my cousin, he happens to have some teenagers, and he left the teenagers at home to come to this graveside, graveside service. And he's got one of those personalities, a little bit joking, and, and uh, he says that his, his uh, teenagers are at home, and who knows what they might be doing. They could be throwing a party. He got a little more colorful than that, but that, that's the general idea of where he was going. You know, we don't know. He didn't expect that they would be, but who knows? This is the kind of thing that happens when parents go away, right? Teens throw parties and experiment with inappropriate things. Paul echoed that sentiment in Philippians 2 when he said to the, the Philippian church, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's, there's something about this, I'm not present anymore to keep you in line. 
still be obedient, still follow Jesus, even in my absence. And what happens when mom and dad are away or when the boss is out of the room, when the authority that keeps you in line is not present, that is what reveals the condition of your heart. When the, vine, when the, when the master is away, what do the vine dressers do, right? When the father is away, what does the son do? When Jesus is in heaven and we're awaiting his return, what do we do? In Matthew 23, Jesus is responding to these caretakers of his vineyard, people that should have been doing good things while he was away. And now he's there and they've rejected him. They're about to put him on the tree and they've committed to killing him. And he says, look at verse 15. He says some harsh things. They have, they, there is no coming back from, for them. They have committed the unpardonable sin at this point. They have determined they are going to kill Jesus. And so he says some things about them. Condemnation, he, he rarely gives to anybody. Most of the time, some sinner comes to him, you know, the, the prostitute thrown at his feet. He says, I'm not going to condemn you. But the Pharisees, the hardened hearts, refusing to surrender, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. If somebody said that to me as a pastor, I would be disconcerted at least. It would be a really thoughtful moment. Is that really what I'm doing? But, but they didn't have that kind of emotion. When they heard this, their hearts were only deepened in their rebellion. Jesus calls them blind guides repeatedly throughout Matthew 23. In one place, he points out this huge disconnect between their outward behavior and the state of their hearts. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is verse 27. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly appear beautiful, uh, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He said, they're so careful to strain their water so they don't drink a gnat. And yet the hearts that are so full of pride and arrogance and greed and lust for power and lust and all the other things, they're, they're committing sins that would be the equivalent comparatively between a gnat as eating a camel. You're going to strain this fly out, but I'm going to eat a camel. It's like their, their hearts are totally corrupt. And he ends up ending this message in uh, verses 37 to 38 with this woe-filled statement, so deep with emotion. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing... See, your house is left to you desolate. This longing that he has to draw them to him. He's been pleading with them for years, trying to break through the crust of their hardened hearts, and they would not allow it. You were not willing. May we never refuse the pursuit of God's love. May we never be in the position where God can say to us, you were not willing. Jesus' last words in that verse, your house is left to you desolate, are really important. They're filled with so much meaning. 
It was Sunday that he was throwing out the merchants from the, 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 the temple. And in that context, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But this is Tuesday, two days later. And he points to these scribes and Pharisees and priests. And he says, your house is left to you desolate. It's not my house anymore. All those forms and ceremonies and things that you do that should be pointing to what I'm doing right now, to my work as the Messiah, my salvation, you're ignoring that. You keep your traditions. They're not mine anymore. Jesus left the temple after this conversation, uh, these woes that he pronounced on the scribes and Pharisees and priests. And as he was leaving with his disciples, he turned around and he pointed to the temple complex and he says, see all these buildings? There's going to come a time when not one stone will be left sitting on the other. They're all going to be thrown out, thrown down. And that made the disciples a little bit, well, they were unsure of what to think about that. And in chapter 24, Jesus is asked this question by the disciples. When will all these things be? What are going to be the signs of your coming? Because surely the temple being thrown down must be the end of all things. What are going to be the signs of your coming? And so Jesus proceeds in verses 3 to 44 of chapter uh, 24. He proceeds to describe what the time will be like. And, And he describes both the destruction of Jerusalem and he also describes the things that, and the destruction of Jerusalem was back in AD 70, but then he also describes things that will happen just before the second coming of Jesus, when the end of all things will actually be. And some of the things he talks about are earthquakes and famines and deadly diseases and wars and warmongering all around the world. He talks about false Christs and people who would seek to lead the saints away from him. And, uh, and then he says this in Matthew 24, verse 6. He says, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, this is an important point to mark down if you're thinking about end time events. Jesus isn't telling us to not pay attention to these things, but he is telling us that we can't use those things to determine when he's going to return. We we can't, um, with fanciful figuring, figure out a date based on the intensity or frequency or severity of these various events. Oh, this is one of the deadliest diseases that the world has ever known. Jesus must be here soon. This is the biggest earthquake we've ever seen. Jesus coming is just around the corner, just days, weeks, months away. Like we can't do that. He says, literally, all these things must happen, but the end is not yet. And, uh, while they are going to all ratchet up in intensity, there's something else Jesus wants us to focus our attention on. And he says it in verse 14. Read it with me. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What's the indicator of the end? What's the sign that the end is here? It's the gospel going to all the world. And I just like to add this component that we see in Revelation, a polarization between the gospel and its false counterpart. A polarization where the world is considering these two options, Jesus' gospel or some man-made tradition in its place. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in Matthew 24 that we don't have time to explore right now because we're getting to the parable that's here in Matthew 24. And, but we need this for context. Um, look at verse 32. 
Jesus says this. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things that I've just described, you know that the end is near, even at the gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. When you see these things, you know the end is near. We know the end is near. We know the end is near. We don't need any more evidence in nature to know the end is near. Jesus says you'll see signs in the heavens. Uh, It wasn't that long ago in the timeline of history that there was a great dark day predicted in the Bible. And it was predicted to happen right at the end of the 1260-year prophecy, which finished up in the late 1700s. And around the time of the end of the 2300-year prophecy, the last and final great prophecy in the Bible, a time prophecy in the Bible, and it, that finished up around the mid-1800s. And you have the great dark day, and you have the, the biggest falling star event called a Leonid that the earth has ever known. Typically, you get a Leonid with uh, you know, a few falling stars in an hour. But on that day in 1833, there was... Tens of thousands in an hour. It was so bright, it lighted the sky like it was noonday. And then there was the, 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 the moon turning to blood. All these signs in the heavens would predict Jesus' coming would be near, even at the gates. We don't need to know anything more than that to know that Jesus' coming is near. But, but we are, you know, we hear that um, all the time. We hear this idea Oh, Jesus is coming soon. And, and sometimes we, well, we either say, ah, it doesn't really matter. It's been a couple hundred years now. You know, it might be a couple hundred more. And we shrug our shoulders. Jesus is coming. Yeah, we've heard that all our lives. Or we do the opposite thing and we say, Jesus is coming. I've got to, I've got to figure this out. And we try to, to, to do our figuring and pull the pieces together and figure out a timeline. Um, neither of those Seem like good ideas. And Jesus is about to tell us in this next parable what we should be doing, how we should be responding to all this teaching about the second coming and the end of the world and all of those things. Look in verse 36. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is an important point he's wanting to make. Nobody knows. Don't try to figure it out. It's going to be like the days of Noah. Now, what we try to do with that is we say, oh, the days of Noah were evil. And so we compare our day with the day of Noah, and we're like, our, it's, everything's eviler and eviler and eviler. That's probably not even a word, but we'll use it. And it's, and it's like the intensity of the evil that we see around the world is evidence that Jesus is coming. But wait, what did Jesus say? What's the... The evidence, the one thing that he said would happen and then the end would come. Is it that the world would become more evil? The gospel would be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and then the end would come. So, so he's pointing us to the day of Noah, not because he wants us to, to figure out if our day matches the evil of that day. Honestly, the evil of Noah's time had been filled up before the flood. It wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, oh, it needs to get to a certain amount of evil and then the rain's going to come. And it's not the case today. Our evil has been filled up already. We don't need it to get more evil for Jesus to come. 
Think about what was happening in Noah's day. Noah was building an ark. What was that ark? The ark was the means of salvation. And as he built that ark, he told the gospel story. His story went something like this. There's going to be a coming judgment. God asked me to build an ark of salvation. Won't you please come inside? That's the gospel, isn't it? There's going to be a coming judgment. In fact, we can say it differently because Matthew, I'm not Matthew, Revelation chapter 14 says the hour of his judgment has come. It's already here. It's, it, there's something going on right now. So the, the urgency is present tense. And then there's something going on behind the scenes. An ark is being built. A gospel to be preached. The way of salvation being prepared. And when, it's, when the way of salvation is finished, the end will come. But what was happening in the time of Noah? He says, it's just like in the days of Noah, so also in the coming of the Son of Man. The normalcy, the normalcy is what people saw all around them. Oh, yeah, the ark is being built, but everything else seems pretty normal. People were eating and doing business and marrying off their kids and starting families. It was normal until one day they were inundated with water from all sides and the end was there. Now, they could have known if they had listened to Noah. They could have known But they closed their ears, they shut their eyes, and they went about their business. Just as in the days of Noah, so also in the coming of the Son of Man. He says there's going to be a time when salvation is ready, and it's going to come upon you unawares, unless you're paying attention as my people tell the gospel story. Judgment is coming. An ark of salvation is being prepared. Won't you come with me? That's the gospel. He says, please take that to all the world as a witness to all nations. That's when the end will come, when the gospel is complete. Matthew 24, 42, Jesus says, therefore, because we know this, stay awake, for you don't know what day or your Lord is coming. You don't know what day. I mean, prophetically, we know the context, but we don't know the exact day. And so what do we do? When we don't know the day, what do we do? What are we supposed to occupy our time with when Jesus might come tomorrow and he might not come for another 200 years, right? I don't think it's going to be 200 years. Don't quote me on that. Somebody's going to write in a Facebook post, my pastor says Jesus isn't coming for 200 years. That's not what I said. What I'm saying is we don't know. It seemed like in the 1800s, Jesus would come then. Why hasn't he come yet The only answer I can give is that the ark isn't finished and Jesus wants people to be saved. Uh, Yeah, that deserves an amen. I agree. Amen. He wants people to be saved and he will do anything possible to get the hearts tender to respond to his gospel. He was patient with the Pharisees. Certainly he'll be patient with us. We don't need to be spending the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming speculating about the time. I'm just going to say that one more time. I want it to sink deep into our hearts. We don't need to be speculating about the time of Jesus' return because it doesn't matter if it's tomorrow or 200 years from now. Jesus gave us clear instructions about what we should be doing, and it's not trying to figure out the date. 
That's just not what we should be doing. Look in Matthew 24, verse 45. He tells this parable to help us understand what our job is while we're waiting for his return. He says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Pause. What is the job of the faithful and wise servant who has been set over the household? To give them their food. Just metaphorically chew on that for a moment. The job of the servant who is set over the house is to give them their food. Now, I believe Jesus is talking to the disciples in response to what his conversations with the Pharisees have been. Because the Pharisees were supposed to be, and the priests and whatnot, they're supposed to be this nation of priests that would take the gospel to the world. And he doesn't want the, the, the disciples to fall into the same trap of the Pharisees. He wants them to know what they should be doing while they wait for his return. And so he says this parable, the faithful and wise servant who's been set over the house, that's the leaders. That's me. That's our elders. But it's also all of us because he called Israel the nation of priests. It wasn't the intention of God for just the Pharisees and religious leaders to be the ones leading spiritually. He wants all of us to. But he's talking to the, to the disciples and he's saying, do this differently than the Pharisees did. And, and he says, give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master find, will find so doing when he comes. That's one side. But then... There's the teenager who hosts a party while his parents are away. (laughs) Keep reading. He says, truly, I say to him, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be a judgment for those who have been given the responsibility of feeding my house who instead take the food I gave them to feed others and use it to party instead. Hmm. In Matthew chapter 28, just a few days after, a month after this experience, Tuesday, we're talking about Tuesday, the final week of Jesus' life before his death. And then after his resurrection, he's around for like 40 days, right? And, and it's right at the end, right before he's ascending to heaven, he says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the responsibility of God's church. Go give them my food in due season. What's the season? Today is the day of salvation. That's what the Bible tells us. And so we need to be giving them the food. What is the food? The food is God's word. The, the Israelites, Paul says that they had the oracles of God. They had all the riches of God's word and they refused to give it to the world. Instead, they isolated themselves and they hid themselves from others and they protected themselves with all these rules to make sure they stayed righteous. And what they ended up failing to do is give back the fruit to God. They didn't reap a harvest in the field of, of the world. And he doesn't want the, the, the disciples to do that. So he says, go, get out of this place and take the gospel to the world. What if they don't do that? They take the riches of God's mercy and grace, the things in his scripture, and they stay within the four walls of the church and they 
Have a spiritual party, ignoring the need in the field. God says they are wicked servants that he will cut in pieces and put with in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I, I would rather not be in that position. He asks us to be faithful and wise servants. What do we do while we wait for Jesus' return? It's, it doesn't matter about speculating about when. That just doesn't matter at all. He says, you've got a job to do. Give my, my household their food in due season. In Luke chapter 19, it's around the same time, Jesus is telling a similar parable. And this one, it's about, uh, he's got 10 lumps of silver, 10 measures of silver. And he gives some to one and some to another and some to another, and he leaves and he comes back. And you know the story, what happens? Um, One comes back and, well, look in verse 13. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. And when he comes back, one of them has invested it. The other one has invested it. And what's the third one say? He buried it. He's like, you know, here's your, here's your pound of silver back. God has given the church a responsibility. He says, feed my house while I'm gone. Invest my riches while I'm gone. Plant the seed of the gospel while I'm gone. And, and if we don't, then that's condemnation on us in the same way that it was on the Pharisees. Who cares that we kept the Sabbath? Who cares that we believe in the, uh, the, the nature of death like the Bible says? Who cares about all of our forms and doctrines if we don't take the gospel to the world? Who cares? We will be just like the Pharisees who murdered our Savior. And when Jesus comes, we will hide in the rocks, instead of saying, this is our savior, we have waited for him and he will save us. He will look at us and say, I never knew you. Because why would, why would our love for God cause us to ignore his children? It's not love. That is not love. Like some teenagers partying and disobeying while their parents have left home, we can keep God's resources to ourselves But there's that Luke guy. We don't necessarily need to be partying. We can just ignore the need. And instead of investing, we can let our resources sit idly by. Instead of doing Bible studies, instead of sharing the gospel, we just kind of chill. And God God says neither of those are are helpful for his kingdom. Neither of them will produce fruit. And in in this last little bit of Jesus' life, before, before his crucifixion, there's this moment um, it's on Thursday, a couple days after these stories that he's telling. He's with the disciples in the upper room, and they're doing this uh, feast. And, and in, this, in this time, right before his death, he points to the second coming time. And he, he doesn't want to make it about judgment. He says, there's, there's hope. This is about the gospel. There's, there's joy. There's wonderful things. And he says... In my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and take you to myself. And, and it's when he's saying this kind of stuff that he's, he tells them, in the meantime, while you wait, here's what I want you to do. Because when, when we look at feeding God's house, we can get overwhelmed. 
It's overwhelming to think of the, the, the need that's just in our county, much less in our state or in our country or in the world. The, the, the resources that we have are so limited. The ability of time and knowledge and all that stuff is so limited that we kind of can get overwhelmed when we hear that we need to take the gospel to the world. And I think Jesus is, is wanting to help the disciples understand what he means. And so he says in John chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be, may be full and that your joy may be full. He's not asking us to do something that's onerous and difficult. He's simply asking us to abide in his love. He says, abide in me and I in you. The, the abide the, the allowing Christ to abide in you is the, 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 the surrender to him, the, the statement that says, Lord, my life is yours. Please take over. Be my savior. And then abiding in him, it's the, the faithful reading of scripture and prayer and listening to God's spirit, um, fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters. Abiding with Jesus isn't difficult work. It's just chasing after the love of your life. And when we do that, in that context, we say, Jesus, what is it that you want of me? And then he will lead us step by step, day by day, into the vineyard. Lord, what would you have me do today? Who would you have me talk to? How would you like me to speak to so-and-so? We pray for the people that we love, the neighbors that we have. And in that time of abiding, God empowers us for the going. Our job is the abiding, and he takes care of the going as long as we're surrendered. That's not too difficult, is it? That shouldn't overwhelm us or make us feel like it's impossible. The work is God's work. The vineyard is his vineyard, and the power is from the Holy Spirit. Our job is to surrender. Abide in my love, he says. I believe that in the day that Jesus comes... He will come and see the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church so doing as faithful and wise servants. I've seen it over the last several years that I've been here. We are an active community that's willing to do what God asks us to do. I'm excited that we have a radio station that's the first sounds are going to come over the airways on 90.7 sometime later in the day on Wednesday this week. God willing and all the pieces working together, right? But, but that's going to be our first test. And then we'll ask for uh, the license and, and uh, they'll, in a couple weeks, maybe a month, we'll be able to be on air officially. But I'm excited for that witnessing opportunity. I'm excited that we have people going down and helping those in need. I'm excited that we have people handing out literature. And I'm excited that we have um, a depression recovery program started up. We've got the Bible studies at the thrift store and uh, at uh, Ingrid's house. And we've got all kinds of things that are happening in this church to reach out to our community. And I believe God will find us faithful and wise when he returns. But I don't think that we should ever stop and say, oh, we're good. We got this. We need to say, Lord, Holy Spirit, what is it that you would have of us? Is there something we're doing now that we need to quit? Is there something we haven't done yet that we need to start? Do, do we need to change direction? Is there a group that we need to reach differently, better? And that question, that pursuit of God's will 
is something we need to do on a regular basis. It needs to start in my heart and in your heart. And that's why we're doing this 40 days of prayer. It starts with surrender. Lord, take my life. And if that's the only thing you do in this 40 days of prayer time uh, is to say, today my life is yours, God, then that is a, a really healthy use of that prayer time. But we also want to know, God, what do you want of us? Where do you want us to go? How do you want us um, to, to work for you? And there, there are three ways that God leads us. And I've told you this before, so this is just a quick summary. He leads us through his word. And unless we're following what he's told us in his word, he's not going to lead us farther than that. And then he leads us through the providentially opened or closed doors. As we make plans, because of what we read in his word, he opens a door and says, this is the way. And so we go through a door. We go through an open opportunity. And then the third way he leads us is when we are in that prayer time with him, that 40 days or any time in your life when you're surrendering to him and asking for his guidance. In that prayer time, he says, this is what I want you to do. And he impresses on our hearts what he'd have for us. And and what we'd like to do is at the end of this 40-day period, All of our leaders, I'm inviting every deaconess, every deacon, every elder, and every other person that's interested um, to come to Camp Myviden and spend a night and a day wrapping things up and and looking at all the stuff that God's been leading us to be thinking about and, and, and come out of that with a plan for the next couple years, however much time the Lord leads us to, um, a plan for reaching out, for doing the work of feeding God's house. So I'd like to invite you to pray with us. This is not a, a casual thing that the conference has said, oh, you should do this. This is a real need that we have. We need to be led by God's spirit, the power behind the going and the gospel readiness for Jesus' return. We need to be led by him, and so we need to be surrendered, and we need to be asking for his leadership and his vision. Will you please do that with me so that we can be those faithful and wise servants? Not not because our taking the gospel to the world will save us. Only the ark of God's salvation will save us, right? But he's asked us to be like Noah, who builds the ark and shares the gospel. Let's be faithful so that when the end comes, we'll be in that ark. And as many people as we can possibly bring with us, we'll be there too. Amen? Amen. I'd like to sing a special closing hymn.